All right. There we go. All right. So uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it to the book of 2 Corinthians. It's set up for my son. A little short there. That's good. 2 Corinthians. It's in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, the text is in your order of worship as always. We just got two verses this morning, but the number of verses is not... Uh, it doesn't mean it's less important to have the text in front of you because today's topic especially is one of those things that like, you're going to need to see that this isn't my opinion. Really going to need to see that. Okay, So if you... Christine Fernandez is here. I'm sorry. I haven't seen Christine forever. Welcome. Sorry, I just embarrassed her and I didn't mean to do that. I did, actually. No, I did. I did. Yeah. All right, so... Um, So we're in 2 Corinthians 8 this morning. Uh, Let me remind us what we're doing. Uh, This season, we are taking a look at the why of the incarnation, right? This Advent season. Advent is those four weeks before Christmas. Uh, We have, this is the second week, which means two weeks. Two weeks left. Christmas Eve will be here. We'll have morning service, and then we'll have our evening service as normal. But, uh, But we are... We are two weeks from Christmas, and we've been looking at the why. And we're doing that through that Christmas hymn, Thou is Rich Beyond All Splendor, which is not one of the, like, top-shelf Christmas hymns, right? Like, Joy to the World, Silent Night. Like, those are the top-shelf ones. Thou who is rich kind of is kind of fair to Midland. But, it's, but the lyrics of it communicate something deeply profound. And so that's why we've been using it for this. Last week, we looked at the one who was powerful, who is omnipotent, in fact, becoming vulnerable for our sake. Literally, this week, we take the title of that hymn to see the one who was rich becoming poor for us. So if you have your place in 2 Corinthians 8, just two verses, but we would still like you to stand in honor of God's word. We're at 2 Corinthians 8, verses 8 and 9. By, by his word, God made the heavens and the earth. So the number of verses does not change the fact that it's powerful for us. So hear it in that way. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, We can't receive what you have to tell us without your work. Holy Spirit, we are desperately in need of you to come, to open our hearts, to to fill us so we might understand, we might receive what you have for us. And Lord Jesus, no one can communicate uh, your glory to others. You must do that. And so we pray that you would be in Um, All that's said this morning, that it would bring you glory and that it would change us. We want to be changed by your word, shaped by it, formed by it. And so, Lord, we need you for that. We ask that you would do that. Uh, And give us an awareness during this time of your presence. We don't need to make you present. You are present. And you've called us to be present with you. And so we just ask that you would give us an awareness of your presence with us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. The Christmas season is often called the season of giving, right? Uh, I, I wonder if we've ever really considered why that is. I think for most of us, to hear that Christmas is a season of giving is normally a prelude to being asked to buy something that we normally would not buy. But now that it's the season of giving, it seems like a good idea, right? Which is 
neither are true. But uh, why is it that we say this? Is it just a throwaway line meant to manipulate us? Or does it actually speak to something? And by something, I mean something beyond that general sense of wanting to feel generous or to feel special because we've given the right gift or the best gift that holiday season. We won the prize, right? Maybe it speaks to something different. This morning, our text teaches us that Christmas is the season of giving because the one who came is both the giver and the gift. And so we're going to be looking uh, in two ways at this text. Uh, as always, we're going to look at poverty and riches, and then we're going to look, like we did last week, the Christmas spirit. Okay? Outlines in your bulletin, if that's helpful. If not, leave it there. Uh, if, if, if you can track without it, then don't use it. But let's, let's get started. Now, let me say this. If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, I am about to confirm every suspicion you've ever had about church. Right? Because what are the chief suspicions that we have about church? That preachers are out to uh, meddle in what you do with your money. Right? That seems to be like the big one. Yeah, I'm about to do that. Uh, I'm not going to apologize for that. I'm just going to about to do that. This passage is unabashedly about our money. And that messes with us, but it doesn't need to. So let me, let me help us understand why it doesn't need to. You see... Uh, Our culture, Western culture in general, wants to paint Christianity the way all religions are painted. And by that, what I mean is it wants to say that you can have it as a little piece of your life. Over here in this little hermetically sealed box, you can take it out, look at it. Isn't that cool? And it goes over there and it never touches anything. But Christianity isn't like that. It's not a religion in that sense. It's actually comprehensive. It actually touches every piece of your life. And has to. It deals with what we believe, certainly. But it also engages with our finances. It engages with our sexuality. It engages with the way we work, the way we parent, the way we run a business. It engages with everything. So today, it happens to deal with our money. I promise you it's not what we talk about every week. But it is today. Okay? Now, let me me give us a little bit about this text, uh, because we're jumping into the middle of a book. This passage, uh, this little letter to the Corinthian church was written by a dude named Paul. He's one of the early Christian leaders. My guess is, is that he would not be a guy if he were around today that I would invite to parties, uh, because I am not a, a fan of like really intense people. And he is, he was a really intense dude. Before he became a Christian, he was really intense about, um, destroying Christians, destroying Christianity, getting rid of it. And then after he had an encounter with Jesus, he became really intense about spreading Christianity. And, uh, but he was intense. And so in this section of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, Paul is giving instructions on an offering. Which seems weird, but it's not, because there's something special going on. Uh, the churches, or the, the Christians in what is now called Israel, um, at the time was just called a backwater dirt bowl in the Roman Empire, uh, was, was going through a famine. People were starving, especially those who didn't have resources. And so what Paul was doing through the church was gathering resources from the other Christians throughout the, Roman world, the Greco-Roman world to bring those to bear and to give to the church in Jerusalem in particular. And so uh, what I need us to see is that Paul is fundraising. He's fundraising so that folks would give and that they would give above the giving that would normally go to their local church. Hmm. So that's the matter. Let's look at the motive. Look down at verse 8. Get into the text. He says, 
I'm not giving a command, but instead testing the genuineness of your love through the earnestness of others. Now, uh, first I want you to just note this. We'll come back to it a little later. Paul is not giving a command. This is really important. Because that's the first thing we think that church leaders are doing when it comes to giving. There's a reason for it. Uh, We're going to come back to that. Uh, But he's not giving a command. Instead, he says he's testing the genuineness of their love. Here's what that means. I mean, you and I know how this works. We can say that we're about X, right? What is the best way to discover if someone actually is about that thing? It's where their money flows, One of the ways that you can tell what's super important in your life is to see what direction your money flows freely. Not the places where it flows and you feel compelled to, but where does it flow freely? Where is it like you love to give it? Where is it like I always want to give it? And so Paul is testing the genuineness of their love uh, based on where they are giving. We can be all about helping people. We can be all about ministry, all all that stuff until we're asked to give to it. But then he continues, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, remember, Paul is raising money. Paul is an apostle. That is one of the early, most, if you're thinking of authoritarian type leadership roles, like we think these person, when they speak, it is like, like this is a big deal. Paul. He's the guy who planted this church, the church, well, not this church, the church in Corinth, not this one. All right, but I planted this one. But you know, he planted the church in Corinth, which means that they already looked to him as, a, as an authority figure. And he's saying, and, and, and in fact, he's actually utilized that authority in the past. You can see that in both of these letters. But here, though, he isn't giving commands. He's basing his request on the Corinthians' knowledge of God's Grace. Think about that for a minute. Because if you have all those suspicions about churches and money, and especially preachers and money, this is going to start to deconstruct those. Paul seems to think that what it is that makes us generous is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. See, grace is a churchy word, and even for those of us who have been in church a long time, we've probably grown so used to it that we miss what it means. Thankfully, uh, Paul gives us clearly a definition, and he does so, first and foremost, by talking about being. So look down at verse 9. Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though being rich. Now, if you have a Bible, you can mark that word being, uh, or let let me say it. Though he was rich. I guess you could put it in there in the ESV, but here's why I'd want you to mark that. When Paul talks about that word being, or he was, which for us is just a, you know, random verb, but what that says in the original is talking about a continual state. What Paul is trying to get across is that Jesus was in a continual state of wealth. A continual state of that. Now, what does that mean? What he's talking about is what we looked at last week in John's gospel, that Jesus is God. Now, some of you will remember from last week that John talks about Jesus being God and being with God. And that, that's that Christian notion of God in which there's uh, three persons in one being, right? Three persons in one substance uh, that the early church worked so hard to try and put a formula together that made some sense of what the New Testament says about God. Uh, that, that there's a complexity to God. And so what 
what Paul is saying is that Jesus, from eternity past, existed in this state of wealth continually. Now, does Paul mean material wealth? Well, I mean, you could say that. But my guess is it's more metaphorical here. Because when you and I think about what it would mean, when we daydream about being wealthy, and let's be honest, we all do it, right? When we daydream about being wealthy, we're not thinking about how it would be great to have a bunch of cash to jump into, like Scrooge McDuck swimming through his money bin. If you didn't, don't pick that up. You can YouTube it later. Uh, that's not what we're thinking about. We're not thinking about having lots of cash per se. What we're thinking about is how all of that cash can work for us. What we can do with it. What the money can be for us. Right? So like if, it's, if, you, if you're wealthy and it's really cold outside like it is this morning, you can be like, I don't want to be cold. I'm flying to the Caribbean. I'm going to get on my private jet and fly to the Caribbean because I can. Or if it's hot and you're like, oh, it's hot. No big deal. I'm flying to Vail. I'm going to go skiing. It's going to be awesome. Like We like the idea that if we have wealth, we can always be satisfied. That's what we're talking about. It's that state of having all we could ever want. And Paul is talking about the same. He's speaking of a state of fullness. So when the Bible talks about God, it's talking about a person who is all-powerful. We talked about that last week. Who's perfect and who exists in a state of fullness. He needs nothing, right? And that's important, so stay with me. Because the, when the Bible talks about God creating, we need to understand that when God created the, the universe, the world, everything, he didn't create because he needed something. I think some of us get hung up on that. We tend to think that God created because he was lonely, right? He needed a bro, so he made Adam. And that wasn't good enough, so he made Eve. And he's like, all right, now, now I'm good. Or, or we think that like, his ego was, was uh, fragile, and so he created creatures that would have to praise him. But the Bible actually teaches us that God was in a state of fullness. He's not lonely. One God and three persons. There's an ever-present relationship of love that's going on there. He didn't need glory. The three persons glorify one another. They got all the glory he needs. Doesn't need it from you and me. There's a perfect communion. God didn't create to give himself anything. He was totally fulfilled apart from creation. And that's Jesus. That's the Jesus that Paul is talking about here. Are you with me? But Paul doesn't just talk about Jesus being, he talks about ours. He's going to say at the end of the verse that Jesus made us rich. And that kind of hinges on an assumption, right? And that assumption being that you and I are not that. That we were not that, that we needed Jesus to make us that, which means that our being is not wealth, but poverty. Now, why is that? Well, the answer on that is also found in the story the Bible tells us. Because though God was complete in himself, he created. And the way I always love to talk about this is that uh, there, there is this relationship of perfect love in the Trinity such that God was saying, I want to, I want to draw others into this. That this would be great. Like, we enjoy this so much. Let's, let's share this with others. It's like the perfect, as if, if, if this were even possible. It's like that... That moment in a marriage where, where maybe you decide, like, this relationship is so awesome, I want to invite children into this to enjoy this with us. Now, I know none of us think that, but ideally, right? Uh, ideally, maybe that's the way that, that we're called to do that. But something happened 
We, he created us to enjoy the fullness that's in him, to share that fullness with us. But something happened. We became convinced of a lie. That you and I could be full apart from him. In fact, that we should be full apart from him because he was actually not out for our fullness. He was holding us back from that. That we could be something more. And so we turned from him and betrayed him. And the Bible calls that sin. Sin is personal. It is relational. It's not based on rules. It's a breaking of a relationship. And that's what we did. We turned and betrayed him. And when we did, we became guilty. Became guilty because every betrayal brings guilt. But we also entered into a state that the Bible talks about being corrupt. That we are corrupt. Now, some of you get skeptical at that. But stay with me. Hear me out. We left the fullness that we were made for, pulled back from that, turned in a different direction, and are now seeking to find that fullness on our own. The Bible says that when that happened, when we turned from him, that everything we do is now seeking that fullness on our own. It's in our nature. Here's what I mean by that. All of us are convinced that our life will be meaningful, that we will be satisfied, that we will be somebody. If we have blank. That's different for each of us, right? For some of us in this room, it's a relationship. We want, if I had a a spouse, or I had the right spouse, if I had that best friend, if if people loved me, I would be full. I would be satisfied. Others of us, it's reputation. If people just think well of me, if I can guard my reputation with the world, I will be satisfied. For some of us, it is money. That is what we're looking for. If I have enough money in my bank account, I'll feel safe. And oh, by the way, if I have enough, I can get whatever's going to satisfy me. It'll be awesome. And then there's those of us who just want personal fulfillment. It's not very well defined. We just know what it would feel like. If I can finally get personal fulfillment, I'll be satisfied. Well, here's the problem. Anyone there yet? Like, I ask that seriously. Is anybody, is anybody there yet? Anybody have enough? Like, if relationships are super important to you, you're like, yes, I never feel lonely. I never feel like an outsider. Funny, no hands. Uh, you know, some of you are doing all right financially. You ever feel like there's no way I, am, I can get anything I want? I am satisfied. Huh. That's funny. See, The reality is, is that we can get that pay raise and it's not enough. We find that significant other. We find that best friend. We still feel lonely. We we do everything that we think we can to be fulfilled and it's never enough. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He, He said in Mere Christianity that if we find in ourselves a desire for which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical conclusion is that we were made for another world. Right? If, if there's a desire in us that we can't seem to ever, we're made for something that we can't seem to satisfy, then we must conclude we were made for another world. And that is because, friends, the Bible would argue we weren't made to find fullness in things. We were made to find fullness in the one who's rich. And so here's Paul's position in the position of Christianity. God is the creator of all Things And God exists in fullness. He is rich. We, however, because of our sin and seeking life apart from God, are stuck in abject poverty, continually seeking fullness in things that cannot satisfy us. And both the state of poverty 
that emptiness, and our ravenous pursuit to fill it are about who we are, not about how much we have. Okay? But here's where Paul speaks of God in action. He speaks of becoming. Look back at verse 9. Again, Paul says, The Lord Jesus Christ, who though being rich, became poor. Okay, now, what's he talking about? Simply this. It's what what we're celebrating here at Christmas. That God took on flesh in Jesus to enter into our poverty and rescue us from us, from it. Like he's the one that was betrayed, and yet he was the one who said that he would fix what we ruined. And that's what we're celebrating. Jesus became poor. He's entering into our poverty. And that word, again, became, means in the original something that happened at one time. A, a one-time event. Boom. It happened. In being, he's rich. But in becoming, he becomes poor. He went from abundant fullness to abject poverty. But here's the problem. You and I have so romanticized Christmas that we completely gloss over this. Right? We have our little manger scene set up on our house. We even have the little people one in our house. Right? My kids love taking it out and they're playing with it and doing all this stuff. And it's so cute and everyone seems so happy and wonderful. A pregnant young woman is forced to give birth in a cave Not a wood stable. A cave. Because no dude will give up their space. It was smelly. It was dirty. There's nobody there to help. Except Joseph. And we all know how much help the husbands are. Let's be honest, right? (sighs) She's alone. Because no one would give up their room. And then, if that weren't enough, the Lord of all the universe gets to be wrapped in rags and put in a feeding trough. And if you think the trough was empty, oh look, here's an empty wooden feeding trough in a barn. Who knew who would have thought? Let's put him in there. No. Some of y'all young parents, I want you to imagine putting your baby, newborn baby, in a feeding trough. Because there's nowhere else to put him. Because nobody cares. That's what Jesus entered into. That ain't no like romantic little crush scene. It's dirty. It's smelly. It's awful. It was ugly. Jesus entered into the emptiness of our world and our existence. But he didn't do so for kicks. Paul goes on that he did this. So that through his poverty, we might be made rich. Here it is. The logic of religious worldviews is generally this. You did this, go do this, and you'll get this. Right? It's always about me and about what I can do. Or you and what you can do. The logic of Christianity is different. Because the logic of Christianity is always substitution. It's always about substitution. We messed things up when we substituted ourselves for God. So God fixes it by substituting himself for us. Do you see that? The rich one comes into our poverty and carries it so that we might become rich. He is rich but becomes poor. We are poor but he makes us 
rich. That is always the logic of Christianity. How does that work? Well, it's the cross. Remember what I said last week. You cannot ever separate Christmas. You cannot separate the cradle from the cross. Ever. Because the cradle without the cross is just, huh, look at that. But with the cross, it's, I'm, I'm rescued. The world is remade. Because all, through, all of us, through our sin, through seeking life apart from God, have brought guilt on ourselves. And I know some of us struggle with that. We don't like the idea of God judging. It seems violent. Uh, it seems vindictive. It doesn't seem to match with a loving God. But you know this because you know that all betrayals bring guilt. When you've betrayed others, you know that there's guilt. When others have betrayed you, you know that there's guilt. And forgiveness is never the, the dissolution of that guilt. It can't go away. Poof. Forgiveness is always the betrayed person bearing the weight of the betrayal for the betrayer. Right? You can't make the offense go away. If you were betrayed, the only way you deal with it is by you bearing it instead of them. That's forgiveness. Justice is them bearing it, as they as would be just. Jesus came to bear our guilt and heal our corruption. He lived a perfect life. That life that we never could because he lived it in the fullness of God. But then he died the death that we should have died. He bore our guilt. He bore God's wrath at being betrayed. God the betrayed one becomes human so that he could bear the guilt that we deserve. He is rich but becomes poor. So that us, so that we in our poverty might become rich. Now, for the why and the how, we need to return to grace. Remember how Paul begins this? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Friends, Grace is always getting what you didn't earn. It's an undeserved favor. What have we earned? I mean, biblically at least. You may not agree with this. but We've earned guilt. We've earned judgment. But out of grace, Jesus became poor to make us rich. But did you notice what Paul says? He doesn't say Jesus became poor so that we in our poverty might try harder to become rich. Or that he might open the door for our richness and our wealth. That he... That he became poor so that he might make us rich. That's what he says. He takes what we earned and gives us what he earned. Again, substitution. Paul says that it is this reality. That God and Jesus, though rich, became poor. So that through poverty we might become rich. It's that reality that becomes the backbone to Christian generosity. Okay? Now, I promised you at the beginning that I was going to talk about your money. So here we go. I wouldn't want to renege on that promise. We need, we need to go on this, okay? And I want to try to bring this home in two ways this morning. Because Paul's trying to accomplish something. We need to see this Advent. Because first, we need to know the grace. What is it that makes you generous? Is it like the radiothon? The television commercials of starving children? Does that make you generous? I mean, I'm not saying, does it actually make you write a check? Because it might do that. But does it make you generous? Because I think for some of us, it is guilt. It is being moved by some video or, or by someone's story who passes us on the street. But does that make you generous? Paul says that generosity is less about what you have and more about who you are or what you are. It's less about what you have and more about who you are. Because he says that what makes us generous is not a social conscience. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. 
nor is it heightened awareness, nor is it emotional manipulation. What makes someone generous is belief in the fact that we were made right with God and made full through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Hmm. What do you think about that? But my guess is some of us are thinking like, what does that have to do with this? Right? Well, follow me because I think it does. Generosity, giving, is a willingness to give away our money, our time, and even ourselves. But we aren't generous, and none of us are. Look, none of us, left to ourselves, are generous. We might give once in a while, but none of us are generous in and of ourselves because we still think we can get life for ourselves. You will never be free to give away everything if you think that everything can give you anything. You're never going to be free to give away everything if you think everything can give you anything. See, we aren't generous with our money because we think on some level our satisfaction is wrapped up in that. Sure, we're not Scrooge McDuck, but it would be really nice if we had... I, all I, I don't want... Look, Rick, I don't want a private jet. I just... I need my latte. You know? It's, I know it's not fall anymore, but I need my pumpkin spice latte. That's what I need. Or, or you know, uh, Rick, what, what I, I just... I need to be able to, to go on this vacation that I want. I... That'll, that'll satisfy me. The same is true with our time and our lives. I can't give of my time, Rick. I don't have enough of it. Which is funny, because we all have the same amount. But I don't, I don't have enough of it. I need time to myself, because I won't be satisfied unless I have me time. Which, yeah, it's not necessarily true, uh, untrue. But if we truly believe that our fullness has been provided for us in Jesus... Right? If we have grasped that truth by faith and believe that now we are right with God and received in him all that we are truly hungering for, then stuff loses its power. You can give money away because it doesn't really give you anything. But so long as we think that our money or how we use it will bring us satisfaction, will make us somebody, whatever that stuff is, we'll never be free to truly be generous. We'll always be simply uh, waiting for the next emotional manipulation to make us feel better, right? And in that vein, if we think that giving somehow makes us right with God, appeases our conscience, increases our reputation, whatever that is, right? Then you're not going to be free to be generous. As a matter of fact, even if you are giving to get those things, you're not being generous. It's an economic thing. You're giving away what you care less about to get what you care more about. I don't care about money as much as I care about my reputation. So I'll let everyone see that I give my money away so I can get my reputation. Right? I, I, don't, I don't care as much about my money as I do about feeling guilty. So I'm going to give my money away so that I don't feel guilty anymore. But if you believe that there's nothing you can do to take away your guilt, no image you can put on that actually covers your failures... But instead, that those things you are looking for have been provided by Jesus and are freely given to you if you receive him by faith, then you're actually going to be free to give without worrying about what you get in return because it no longer matters. This is why Paul says, when he's trying to help the Corinthians and us get to generosity, you know, right, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because grace changes everything. Grace changes everything. 
The last thing I want to talk about is testing the faith. And here, here's how I do that. Do you feel free to give? Now notice I didn't say, do you have enough to give? Like, do you have enough in your bank account? Do you feel free to give? Because the one who talks about generosity or giving or even grace, but then kind of zealously hoards their stuff, guards their lifestyle, Paul would say, maybe you haven't really known the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Paul doesn't command them. Remember I said I'd come back to that? I'm coming back to it. This is why Paul doesn't command them. He doesn't need to. The equation is simple. You don't, it, 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 it goes like this. Most of us think that generosity is born out of, that God's opinion on generosity is one of two things. Either you get to, give God, to get God's favor, or you give to get God's favor, right? I'm going to give my money away so that God will like me more. Or, God doesn't really care what I do with my money. Paul goes, no, no. False dichotomy. Because you have God's favor, because you have fullness in Him, you will want to give. So my question is this. Do you want to give If it's the experience of God's grace that supposedly makes us generous, then, friends, Christians should be the most generous people on the face of the planet. My guess is, though, that if we're really being honest, we're probably about normal with everybody else. So do you want to give? Let me make this as clear as I can. Greed and Christian discipleship are as foreign to one another as sexual immorality and Christian discipleship. I know we don't think that, or maybe we do, but none of us think we're actually greedy, right? I mean, we can't be greedy. We don't have enough money to be greedy, right? I think I've told you guys this before. I've mentioned it a number of occasions. One of the pastors in our denomination, Tim Keller, uh, pastor of a big old church in, in Manhattan, has said that over the 30 plus years of him being in ministry, he has heard people confess to him every sin except one greed. For us in our culture, we're blind to it. We don't even see it, we don't even see our greed. And and what Paul is trying to get at here is he's trying to base the giving of Christians on the giving of Jesus. How did Jesus give? Because it wasn't with his leftovers. Jesus didn't give his leftovers. He gave everything. Now, so my question goes like this. Are you giving your time? Are you giving your treasure? Are you giving your talents to see others flourish? To see them flourish spiritually, physically, and emotionally? And I'm talking primarily to Christians right now. So if you're just checking us out this morning, this is great. You get to check out and not walk away thinking any of this has to do with you. Okay? So this is great. Just listen in. Paul is calling us here not to give our leftovers. He is calling us, you and me, to sacrificially give like Jesus did for the sake of others. To see them flourish. Now... What immediately jumps into our heads as soon as I say that is, does this mean I'm not going to be able to get my needs met? What if I have to, I give so much that now I'm in need? It's not what I said. You and I do that, when we do that, is to escape 
the call. That is evasion. That is not what I'm talking about. But what I am talking about is that maybe you and I need to take a hard look in the mirror and reevaluate what we define as our needs. Because that latte is good. I guarantee you, you will live without it. Right? I'm not, I'm not hating on lattes. And some of you know I don't drink coffee. And that's not why I picked that. But I'm just saying. If you feel free this morning to give, you do feel free. You're like, Rick, I do feel free, but I don't know where. Let me give you some ideas. I'm going to give you some options. I'm going to give you some options in the church and outside of the church. Okay? In the church, at this church, we have three main funds that we have. We have our general fund. That, help, that deals with our day-to-day operations that help people encounter Jesus, know Jesus, and show Jesus. In this church and outside of this church and are reaching out to others. Okay? That is one place that, especially if you're a member here, I'm sure you're probably already given to that. Uh, but that's a place you could give more to. We have our vision fund. The vision fund, you can write that on the memo of your check. And what that is for is for us spreading the gospel to other places in the valley, in this city, and, and outside. And then we have our mercy fund, which is there to help folks who are in need in our church and outside of our church. That's, in, that's just in this church. We have those three things. But maybe you're like, Rick, I, I'm giving a lot to the church. Feel free, but I want to I give outside. I've got two options for you there. Two of, the, two of the ministries or two of the ways in which we want to seek to impact our community. One of them is through a ministry that we started uh, to partner with another ministry. It's called, the, the ministry started called Generations Hope. And what Generations Hope does is it does wraparound care with teen moms, their babies, and hopefully at one day we'll be able to work with teen dads too. I think there's some of that going on, but it's not as ubiquitous as we'd like. And the reason why it's not, guys, let me just be honest with you. The reason why it's not, there are not enough men. Helping. So if you want to help, if you want to give of your time, we'd love that. Uh, Generations Hope can always use resources. It can always use volunteers. If you're interested in, like, I'm in, just tell me where. Go to holycrosspca.info. You can find information there. It'll send you there. If you want to talk to somebody, you can talk to Pat. I'm sure Pat can help you out, at least tell you where some ways that you can, get, you can get involved. That's one of them. That reflects one of our three lanes. Another one that you can give to, and this is probably more your time than your treasure, is uh, helping with foster families. That back table is full of presents that y'all have answered the call to help financially with foster kids. But you know, you know another way that foster families need help? I think I've said this a bunch of times, but I'm just going to keep saying it. You realize foster parents can't get a babysitter? Like, if they want to go out because life is, like, they, they need a certified babysitter to give respite care. What if you just signed up for that? It's like, what, one class, two classes? I don't even know. It's a short thing. Just go in and provide some respite care for, for families who are, who, are, who are doing the hard work. Like, they're doing the hard work. Right? Or maybe you're like, I'll just sign up for that. Uh, again, holycrosspca.info. We will, we will point you in the right direction. If you don't feel free to give, if you don't feel free to give, may I suggest with Paul that you look again at the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because friends, there's, if you have Christ, there is nothing that your stuff can give you. Nothing. And if you don't have Christ, can I tell you that stuff cannot give you what you want? Not really. This Christmas, let's see the season of giving for what it is. It's a time to reflect on the one who gave us everything. 
so that we could then be made like him and give away anything. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, when we talk about our money, boy, can we get defensive. And so I'm just going to ask you, we're going to confess our sins here in a minute. Uh, I'm going to help us do that. But I, I, I would ask right now that you would just form this church into a generous group. Would you make us a generous church? Would you make us a generous people? Not out of guilt or manipulation, but because we have seen and experienced the grace of our Lord Jesus that changes everything in us, including how we look at our stuff. Do that, Lord, for the sake of your name, because nothing else could make anyone generous but you. And do it, Lord, for our good, because we know that we will flourish best when we most reflect you. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.